0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. We're looking today at chapter 5, verse 8, through chapter 6, verse 12. Ecclesiastes 5, 8. Hear the word of God. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity." When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil I've seen under the sun, riches that were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is Yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to to one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has always... Uh, has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? He thanks the Lord for his word. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn to this portion of your word, uh, we thank you for it. We thank you that you inspired it by your spirit and by your same spirit have preserved it for us. And Father, while it takes a different point of view than much of the scriptures, help us, Lord, to see life from the preacher's point of view and understand the lessons that you have here for us. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, as everyone was arriving, I was speaking with someone who said to me, this ringing endorsement, you know, Ecclesiastes is beginning to grow on me. Well, I knew what he meant. And he said, that wasn't just Ecclesiastes, it was Solomon. Solomon was not his favorite character in the Scriptures. And if you know of Solomon, uh, you know that he really is a mixed bag. Uh, There's some really good things there, but there's some also... Also, some other things that uh, one wished he might have done differently. Uh, Maybe Ecclesiastes is beginning to grow on you. Uh, Maybe you've determined it never will and you can't wait for this series to end. I don't know. But one thing I do know, God saw fit that Ecclesiastes should be in the Scriptures because it is profitable for us, his people, to know. I was uh, reading this past week on a, a blog, and it had to do with uh, preaching. Uh, it was a minister's blog, and uh, he was commenting on, uh, talking about his own devotional life and the things that he reads devotionally from the Scriptures as well as other books, but describing his approach to reading the Scriptures. But he said there are three books that he reads every day, Psalms, Proverbs, In Ecclesiastes. Now, Psalms and Proverbs I can understand. In fact, I usually read from the Psalms and Proverbs daily myself. But Ecclesiastes, not the book we would think of as necessarily being loaded with riches for our spiritual edification. But God thought otherwise. The book is here. And it does have much to instruct the Christian. Much truth for us to mine and to contemplate together. The difficulty is that it simply approaches it from a different point of view. And sometimes the truths that we learn are the negative ones, the opposite of his point of view. Because, honestly, the point of view in Ecclesiastes is different. It's a different take on things than we get from the rest of Scripture. This is a painfully honest book. It does describe the frame of mind Possessed by many who do not know God, who are separated from God in their sin, living life under the sun, apart from relationship to him, apart from the meaning, the purpose, the joy uh, that that brings and the understanding of life that that brings and why the world is the way it is. But this is also, if we're honest, on our bad days, sometimes where we are. Why is it this way, God? Why is it, despite my best efforts, I seem to come up empty? Why is it that sometimes it just seems that life is full of futility? Why is it that things can be so hard? Why is it that things happen that don't make sense? So this is not just a book for the unbeliever. This is a book for Christians because this describes not only where we've come from, but sometimes, if we're honest, where we are in the sense of frustration or futility that we feel. Ecclesiastes also, in its own way, takes up various topics of discussion uh, that Cohelot, the preacher, explores. And the topic that he looks at today is uh, one that is obscure and probably irrelevant and really doesn't have much to do with your life, something very esoteric, the whole subject of money, uh, actually, of course, uh, very relevant, something that was important in that day as well as our own, something that is very much woven into the fabric of our daily lives, for better or for worse. So let's look at what Ecclesiastes has to say here about money. Uh, He takes a rather dim view of it, which is interesting. If you read Proverbs, Proverbs takes basically a very positive view of money, and it has a great deal to say about money, as does the rest of the Bible. But Ecclesiastes takes something of a negative view, and as he looks at it in different ways, we are instructed, we can learn about uh, understanding money better. Basically what he does is looks at the problem with money. That may sound like an odd expression, you know, that's that's a problem I would love to have, right? I wish I had that problem. Well, do you? Maybe uh, we're not quite at the level that Solomon was, and... Whether Solomon was the author of the book or not, the book was certainly written with him in mind. And Solomon possessed vast, almost incomprehensible wealth. Once upon a time, there was a queen who went to go visit Solomon. She had heard of him. She had heard of his wisdom. She had heard of the grandeur of his kingdom. She had heard of the magnificence of his wealth. And when the queen of Sheba was exposed to it and heard his wisdom and saw the order and the grandeur of his kingdom and saw the incomprehensible wealth that he possessed, she was out of breath and she said the half of it was not even told me. This was a man with wealth beyond Bill Gates. This was a man who had wealth that would, could be spent lavishly every day and would last many, 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 many lifetimes. In fact, uh, if if Solomon's wealth is described in modern terms, as uh, as one translation puts it, it says each year Solomon received about 25 tons of gold. This didn't include the additional revenue he received from merchants and traders, all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land. It says that in Solomon's day, silver was little regarded because it, was thought to basically have no value it was so plentiful and there was so much gold and so king solomon became richer and wiser than any other king on the earth but money introduces difficulties into life and it's those we want to look at today and how to address them first one he mentions is the problem of oppression let's face it it's the people who have the money who rule It's the people who have the money who run things. Look at verses 8 through 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor, those without money, and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. And he describes the system, right? Those who govern have governors over them, and they're accountable to more over them. And it's all run and put into effect by those who have the wealth to do it, either to buy office, you know, or to get their name out there and be elected or whatever it might be. But basically what he's saying here is one difficulty with money is that almost inevitably those with the money wind up being the people of influence, whether directly or indirectly, office or outside of office. And it sets up a system, a system that almost inevitably seems to wind up excluding the poor. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. That's not a direct fault of money. It is necessarily, however, uh, what happens that those with the wealth eventually are those the ones calling the shots. And part of the problem with that is it can become a system that excludes those who do not have the money to buy office, to pay for ads, to get justice, whatever it might be. That is a problem with money. One, he mentions here somewhat indirectly. However, he does say in verse 9 that a king who's committed to cultivated fields, in other words, a king who is committed to the well-being of his citizens, whatever the level, is a blessing to the land. And that's true. And you have people with means who are in government who seek to govern well, who seek to ensure justice and uh, provision for everybody and opportunity, then you have a good situation. But very often. The system brought about by money excludes many of those that it is meant to serve. And so that's one problem that he brings up here. Certainly saw it in his own day. We see it in ours. The problem of oppression. The problem of those who do not have the means being shut out from from righteous justice from the government of the land. Verse 10, he mentions another very common problem with money. And that is the problem of contentment. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is a vanity. This is a meaningless thing. Now, notice what he says. He doesn't say, he who has money will not be satisfied with money. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. The uh, passage we read earlier, we're going to go back to it. First uh, Timothy 6 you know, has that famous statement, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Uh, sometimes misquoted uh, or even mistranslated in some of the older versions. Uh, But notice carefully, the love of money, not money, is the root root of all evil. That's not what it says. The love of money is a root, is a source of all kinds of evils. And he mentions some of them. People who want to get rich quick and wind up losing everything. Or people who, uh, in their pursuit of money, wander from the faith. These kinds of things. Uh, well, that's that's certainly uh, predated here by verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. It's 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 the dog chasing his tail. If you love money, you will never have enough to make you satisfied. As one person put it, money can buy us tons of comfort, but not an ounce of contentment. Uh, and as uh, someone once said, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. Well, if you have that mentality, nothing will ever be enough. So the problem of contentment. Uh, Money can buy you comfort, it can buy you convenience, but it can't buy you contentment. And without contentment, you'll never be satisfied because you'll never have enough money. So the problem of oppression is money is involved in society and leads to a system that governs and benefits those within it, excluding those without. The problem of contentment. How much is enough? Well, money can't solve that problem. There's a third problem he mentions here, and it's the problem of anxiety or care. Not having money introduces anxiety and care. Strangely enough, having money introduces anxiety and care. And that's what he talks about here in verses 11 and 12. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Now, what he's saying here is the more you have, the more are those who want a piece of the action. And basically, your advantage is to see all your wealth pass through your hands. You got to maybe hold it. You got to see it, but you really t- didn't benefit from it because there were those who wanted some of it. Or we could make it impersonal. There, There's stuff that robs you of it. Inflation, for one. Uh, bad investments. Um, All kinds of things that could be a problem for our money. In the the New Testament, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks of uh, moths and rust, uh, eating it away, and thieves that break in and steal, uh, that our possessions are in peril, that they're never entirely safe, whether it's our wealth or the things we own, our belongings, whatever it might be. And when you come into money, relationships with people change. Because it doesn't matter who it is, there's always this big elephant in the room that you're millions. That they're aware of, and you're aware of. And it really makes relationships weird. In fact, Proverbs speaks of this. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 20. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Right? Well, 19.4 kind of gets to the point. Wealth brings many new friends. But a poor man is deserted by his friends, right? Everyone wants to be the friend of the person who's loaded, the guy who just won the lottery. He has friends he never knew he had. He has relatives he never knew about. And suddenly they're his best friend. They call him, they want to come see him, spend some time together, go have lunch. You know, you see this illustrated in the movie, The Sound of Music, where Max Detweiler, you know Max, his captain's Captain Von Trapp's friend, the one who puts on the, the, the music festival, Uh, Well, Max is sitting around talking with uh, Baroness Schrader, and uh, Max is, is somewhat thoughtful, and he says to her, I love rich people. I love the way they live. I love the way I live when I'm with them, which is, of course, the point. But, you know, wealth brings many new friends. That illustrates what Proverbs is saying. By contrast. Look at the laborer, simple laborer, verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. What's he saying? Well, the guy with all the money has all these cares, has all these things to deal with, but the simple laborer doesn't. Uh, I like the way one writer puts it. He's describing this passage. He says, take, for example, a guy who perhaps welds all day. Punches in at 7 in the morning, punches out 3.30 in the afternoon, drives his pickup home. He and his son drive over to the ball field, and he shags flies with his boy. He has a great time, a hardworking, fun-loving, easy-going working man. When the game ends, he drives home, eats a bowl of chili, fistful of fritos, watches TV until the news is over, drops into bed. Within 60 seconds, you can hear him snoring. I know these people. I know people like this. It's great. By contrast, he says the rich man has more than enough food. What's missing? Peace of mind. A relaxed mentality. He hasn't people who love him just for who he is. And he's forever preoccupied with pursuits that have financial entanglements. Problems that don't go away when he leaves the office long after dark. Or when he tries to drown them at the bar. And when he finally drops into bed by two in the morning, he tosses and turns as he wonders, is that deal going to pay off? What if I get caught short? Is he going to rip me off? Is it too big a risk? Will this venture fly? Around and around he turns. Over and over he twists. Now, somewhat oversimplified, maybe so. The working man has his share of anxieties too. But those who are responsible for people, responsible for their jobs, responsible for major financial transactions, responsible for taking risks, the employers employers of that uh, simple working man They're the ones who lie awake at night wondering what's going to happen, what could go wrong. So the problem of care, the problem of anxiety, if you have money, you have to take care of it. You have to make sure it's invested right. You have to worry about your taxes on it. You have to take care of all these other things. So yes, having no money brings its problems and anxieties. But having money does not remove problems and anxieties. It just changes them to a different direction. And along those lines, the problem of loss. Look at verses 13 through 17. If you don't have it, you can't lose it. If you have it, you might can lose it. Look at 13. There's a grievous evil I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's the father of his son. Uh, A couple of problems here. One for the man himself is the problem of the loss of his wealth in a bad business venture. Uh, He had it. He invested it hoped to making, hoping to make more, but he wound up losing it in a bad business venture. And he has a son who is counting on that inheritance who now is without an inheritance. And not only has he suffered loss for himself, he has suffered loss for his son after him who is looking forward to his inheritance. And he describes this as a grievous, a miserable, painful, evil um, Problem of loss. Yeah, if you don't have it, you might earn it one day, but if you don't have it, you can't lose it. If you have it, then there's always the possibility and the worry of loss. Problem of enjoyment. It's one thing to have it, it's another thing to be able to enjoy it. Look at verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 18. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat, drink, find enjoyment, and all the toil with which one toils under the sun. Now, he's covered this ground before, right? Death is at the end. It makes everything equal, uh, rich, poor, wise, foolish. So the best thing we can do under the sun, apart from God, is just to enjoy life while it lasts. Well, he introduces a new angle here. Verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Not only the possessions themselves, but the ability to enjoy it, the problem of enjoyment, or not enjoying it. Look at uh, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Another evil that lies heavy on mankind, this man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, honor, lacks nothing, and yet God does not give him power to enjoy it, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. Uh, Not only wealth, but verse 3, long life, many children, both of which were seen as God's blessing. Having all of these things, wealth, long life, many children, and yet can't enjoy them. Uh, In one case, maybe losing them only to have them enjoyed by another. Someone buys them out or whatever it might be. Or he loses it. Someone else enjoys it. Uh, Or simply to have it and not be able to enjoy it. One thinks, for example, of Howard Hughes or others uh, who were very wealthy, and yet for reasons medical psychological, social, whatever it might be, are, are, are not having fun, not enjoying it, vastly wealthy and yet utterly miserable. It really is true that the ability to enjoy the blessings God gives us is also itself a gift from God. In fact, a very graphic image. He says a stillborn child is better off than the person who may have all this not be able to enjoy it. The stillborn child who dies before he's ever seen any of the futility and the vanity of this world. He's at rest. And yet the person who's living in the world, despite what he might have, though not having the ability to enjoy it, doesn't have rest. He doesn't have peace. It's pretty bad to say a stillborn child is better off. And yet that's the the sense of futility that Kohelet has when he looks around at the world. The problem of enjoyment is a huge one. It's one thing to have it. It's another thing to be able to enjoy it and to enjoy life and to enjoy your family and to enjoy relationships without wondering what do they really want. And then finally, the problem of wisdom. And in that day, and really in ours too, often wisdom is associated with wealth. And there's wisdom in money management. There's wisdom in how you go about your business in order to make a decent profit, or maybe even to make vast wealth. Uh, but look at chapter six, verses seven through nine. "All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For well, what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and is striving after wind. Now, these verses are difficult. but What he seems to be saying is basically, you know, what what does it really matter to have wisdom and therefore have wealth? Or what about the problem of someone who may have wisdom and yet doesn't have wealth and the fool winds up with all The money, Uh, the problem of wisdom. Uh, Do you sometimes have to make a choice between living wisely and being wealthy? Sometimes you do, although sometimes the two may coincide. Well, finally, he concludes in verses 10 through 12, uh, basically by looking at the future. Verse 12 For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? The future, and especially death, is a large concern here. But also the past and the present. Whatever has come to be, verse 10, has already been named. And it is known what man is. Uh, And the the present, who knows what is good, verse 12, for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Looking at the past, well, it's just now is more of the same. Looking at the present, we're just living out this life. Looking at the future, who knows? What's going to come? Pretty grim outlook, and we're used to that from Ecclesiastes. But the Bible takes a more helpful view overall of money. While this is helpful because it does remind us of the problems of money and maybe temper inordinate desire for wealth, um, the passage we read earlier, 1 Timothy 6, has some helpful instruction that sort of complements what we find here in Ecclesiastes and puts a little more positive spin on it. Um, We could use the word spin in the Bible. A more positive take on it. That might be a better way to put it. You know what I mean. Um, Turn over if you would. We're going to close with this. 1 Timothy 6. I just want to refer you to some verses here that really do sort of follow up with what uh, Ecclesiastes says. Just some simple principles by way of application. First of all, love God, not money. Or to put it another way, love God, use money. You don't get the two reversed. First uh, Timothy 6, 9 and 10. Uh, again, those who want to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This is when you get the email from Nigeria and you're convinced they need your bank account number so you can help them out and share in the wealth. And so you do it. That's what Paul's talking about here. For the root of money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's easy to make an idol of money. It's easy to love money. It's easy to live for money. Live for God. Love God. Serve God. Use money. So love God, not money. Thank God, not yourself. Uh, This is in verse 17. Ask for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to be proud. What Paul said to the Corinthians would apply to all of us in terms of our money. What do you have that you did not receive? Everything you have, yes, by your work is eventually and ultimately the gift of God. Uh, And he says for the rich, you know, who is that? Well, I mean, yes, compared to the rest of the world, you and I are very wealthy. We really are. And especially in terms of history and certainly in terms of the world today, you and I are vastly wealthy. But within our own culture, within our own society, uh, we're at different levels financially and, you know, some may be, I would guess, we're overall more middle, upper, lower middle class. Somewhere kind of in the middle there are people in our society we would consider to be the rich, where we would not include ourselves, where on a global or historical point of view, we would say that we're all among the rich. Uh, But the point here is true for all of us. Uh, Not to be haughty, not to be proud of what we have or what we have attained, whatever level that might be. Uh, To thank God, not yourself. Wealth can puff up. It can make you proud. It can make you look down on others as if someone's value is determined by his bank account balance or his income. Simply not true. Uh, Someone said a person's true net worth is determined when he loses everything. Um, There's no such thing as a self-made man. A God-blessed man, yes. So thank God, praise Him, not yourself. Third, trust God, not money. Look at verse 17b. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Now, It's easy to put our trust in our money, but our own money reminds us not to do that. It says in God we trust, not money. Now, um, that's a simple reminder, but a difficult thing to apply. It's easy to put our trust in our IRAs and our investments and so forth, but we are to trust in God, not money. And then finally, serve people, not money. Look at verses 18 through 19. Paul says of those with money, they are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, this isn't mutually exclusive with enjoying what God gives us. And it said in verse uh, 17, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God wants us to enjoy the material and financial blessings that he gives us. But then he says to do good works with them. And those two are not mutually exclusive. You know, Can I have fun with it or do, do I have to give it? You know, Sometimes the most thoroughly thrilling way to enjoy it is to give it, is to do good works with the money. Uh, that is a purpose for the money that God has given us. Yes, to enjoy it, but also to use the means he has given us to do good to other people and especially to help build the kingdom of Christ. And so to be rich not only in money, but to be rich in good works Which, as you will note, he says, In doing so, they're storing up treasure for themselves, for it's a good foundation for the future, that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I see that as applying certainly to now, but especially to eternity. uh, To take hold of that which is truly and eternally life. To build up treasures for ourselves in heaven by investing in kingdom purposes. So serve people, not money. We need money. We do. To live in this world, live in the economy in which we live, we need money, we need things. So trust in God to provide it, work hard to acquire it, and be careful to be a good steward of it. But if you want to be really wealthy, pursue even more than an income, pursue godly character, pursue an attitude of contentment. Because as the NIV puts it in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize that we live in a world and certainly in a society and in an economy uh, that functions with money. And Lord, you know that we need it. And we thank you that you do provide for us and how abundantly you've provided for us um, in this congregation, this, the, our families here, but in this society in the United States as a whole. But, Father, that blessing can become a curse if we begin to fall for money as an idol, if we begin to serve it, live for it. Father, keep us from that. Help us to maintain a good and proper and biblical perspective on the money that you have given us. Most of all, Father, help us to be godly people, characterized by a tremendous contentment, because that is great wealth, and we pray that we might have that wealth for your glory and our well-being. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.